0: Checkered, nothing personal, word of the day is checkered, as in the checkered flag. I think we got a checkered flag coming. NASCAR is back. Really? The first sport back? I guess we could say it was UFC. Nah, I'm going to say NASCAR. NASCAR announced a return to racing starting May 17th at Darlington Raceway. Here's a little nugget. No fans. That's normal we agree. Let's bring it back with no fans. No practice? Practice? What is this, like an Allen Iverson special? Do they not think it's smart to maybe have the drivers have a little practice? I guess not, because it's a one-day event. And there will be social distancing. That means that only the front left and the back right tire can be changed at the same time. And then the back right and top left tire can be changed the next time. And if you want your windshield cleaned, or if you want to get a little spritz of water, it has to be handed to you on a six-foot pole like a survivor challenge. I'm sort of kidding. They didn't talk about that. How you going have a pit stop with social distancing or a NASCAR race without practicing and making it a one-day event? Well, the vice president, Steve O'Donnell, said, NASCAR and its teams are eager and excited to return to racing and have great respect for the responsibility that comes with a return to competition. NASCAR will return in an environment that will ensure the safety of our competitors, officials, and all those in the local community? We thank local, state, and federal officials and medical experts, as well as everyone in the industry, for the unprecedented support in our return to racing. And we look forward to joining our passionate fans in watching cars return to the track. Hmm. Officials, all those in the local community. But it's a closed track. They've got to let in a few workers, I guess. they got to turn the lights on. they got to somehow get gas Yet the tow trucks with the cars or the flatbeds, they didn't quite explain to me what the pit stops were going to look like. Well, I guess there's political pressure to bring it back, or is it financial pressure? That is the critical point we are at right now. There is such financial pressure to bring sports back, and now it is wrapped up in a lovely bouquet of political pressure. So much so that word leaked today that Mitch McConnell, no less than Mitch McConnell, called Commissioner Manford and said, hey, Rob, we need baseball back. Okay, thanks for the call, Mitchie. Well, the Senate is coming back. Washington is starting up again. The political machine and the wheels are starting to crank. They could use some oil from Darlington because word came out that while things are coming back, and the one thing that we said we need to come back in general, we need testing. But every return to action has come with the same line that I can't understand. I cannot understand. We will only be making testing available to those who are showing symptoms. Really? The whole point is we have to test people whether they're symptom-free or showing symptoms. Asymptomatic people have tested positive. They can spread COVID. So there's a 100 U.S. senators. Little trivia question. How many U.S. senators are there? Yes, 50 times two is 100. That's true. There's not enough tests for the senators in Washington, D.C. The senators were told that, please, Only avail yourself of a test if you feel symptoms. And my response to that is if you feel symptoms, why are you going back to work? I'm very frustrated. I want there to be a checkered flag. I am not a negative Nancy about sports or the economy or politics. I want normalcy. Where are the goddamn
1: tests? It's
0: all we need. NBA was saying they need fifteen thousand tests. I think it's way more. MLB will need way more than fifteen thousand tests. Anyway, NASCAR checkered, checkered. Do you know what the thing is about having a checkered past? That's an expression, right? The checkered flag. I don't know why they why it's Pococa. Do you have any idea why it's called the checkered flag? Because to me, when someone has a checkered pass, checkered means sort of spotty, like checks or spots on a flag. It's a white flag with black checks, checkered flag, or it's a black flag that has white squares. I guess it could be both. But in any case, let's say that you have a checkered pass. That means there's been some good. There's been some bad. To me, I associate the checkered flag with the finish. You get the checkered flag. You win. May 17th, get ready. Who's going to watch NASCAR who's never watched NASCAR? I'm taking a poll. Get to me at David P. Sampson. Will you watch because it's a sport and because it's live? We know you didn't watch horse. We know you are watching the last dance. We're pretty sure you're going to watch basketball when it comes back. Will basketball come back? Well, there are a bunch of agents and a bunch of teams, and we, we've talked a little bit about, and nothing personal about this, and the reality that it's possible that there are some teams who don't even want to come back that it's not financially feasible for them to come back. Well, LeBron James will have none of it, and he took to social media. Bless his soul, Bronny. Bronny said, I saw some reports about execs and agents wanting to cancel season. Nobody I know saying anything like that. As soon as it is safe, we would like to finish our season. I'm ready and our team is ready. Nobody should be canceling anything. Well, I have a response to that tweet, and there's no reason to keep it to 240 characters because I'm not on Twitter at the moment. Let's start with breaking down that statement. I'm ready. Yes, you are, LeBron, because I bet you're quarantined in place with a full court and that you're out there working out, staying ready, staying sharp. Well, do all your teammates, are they ready? Your whole team is ready? How do you know that? Have you been having team workouts? Because that would be against the rules. Is there a way that you've got players who are going to close gyms to have workouts? Are you playing three-on-three games like Michael Jordan did in the last dance? Are you feeling so out of love because of the last dance that you so badly need to come back and then win a championship to get your Quatra bog? That's fourth ring. I think bog, B-A-G-U-E, Coke. I think that's ring in French. Le bog Quatra, your fourth ring. You know very well that if there's no basketball for the rest of the season, you got yourself a problem because you're getting older. Well, LeBron, I tell you this. I would like you to tweet the following. We want to play. We understand that canceling the season is a definite possibility. We are looking at all options that start with the safety of not the players alone, but of all the staff and all the fans and all the workers. There are hundreds of workers required to put on a National Basketball Association game, and I want to make sure we're protecting all of them. And I want to make sure that if we win this title, the Lakers win it the right way by competing against teams who had the same advantages I did during quarantine. I don't need a long training camp, but I'm willing to approve and be a part of a longer training camp once we can restart to make sure that every team is in top physical and mental condition to start because then when I win my fourth ring, I will know that I am now two-thirds of the way to being the GOAT. Well, the last dance just keeps on giving. Keeps on giving. We talked about uh, every Monday we're going to review The Last Dance. We're going to talk about the episode, spend 20, 25 minutes about it. We've had a bunch of wait to seize about Last Dance, about viewership. We've talked about our players going to come out against what's on The Last Dance. And we said they would, and boy, are they ever. And it happened again yesterday. Now, this is back in the day when the Cleveland Cavaliers had a really good team. Now, they only show on The Last Dance the fact that Michael Jordan hit that shot over Craig Elo. That is the famous sort of... View, um, view of that game, then Doug Collins running on the court, hands raised because they finally won a big series. I think that was 1989, the year they won. Uh, the year they then lost to the Pistons, or is it Celtics? You know what? It doesn't much matter. They beat the Cavaliers, good team. They had a, a point guard, one of the best, named Mark Price. A center, Brad Dougherty, two guards, and a forward. You got. I was going to say Bryce Harper. Then I was going to say Derek Harper, but it was Ron Harper. It's a lot of Harper's Ron Harper. Ron Harper said on the last dance, he said, it was ridiculous. I should have been guarding Jordan. I should have been the one to guard Jordan on that last shot. I'm the lockdown defender. And I said it to my coach, Lenny Wilkins and Lenny Wilkins said, no, we got Elo on Jordan. And that was interesting to me, but guess what? Ron Harper gave the account of what happened and then sort of swore and said it's F and BS and just whatever happens, happens. Well, Craig Elo and Mark Price came out and said, "Eh, I'm not sure that Ron Harper's account of this shot is exactly what happened. As a matter of fact, Craig Elo said, I don't really remember Ron Harper playing much defense at all. Isn't that interesting? And the facts seem to prove that point because if you are a fan of the NBA and you watched, that series, or any game between the Bulls and the Cavs, you knew that Craig Elo was checking Jordan quite often when those two teams played. So why would Ron Harper have recollected that? I wonder. I wonder, did Ron Harper go on and say that it, he played for the Bulls and won some titles? And you know that Jordan was in the dock saying that Harper was a way better defender, right? And I wonder if that's all part of the fact That Jump 23 is producing Last Dance. It's not part of my review of the episodes, but it is part of my conversation with you on today's Nothing Personal. Ken Burns is one of the great baseball historians of all time, one of the great historians. He's done documentaries that are simply phenomenal. He came out publicly and said, The Last Dance, I question the Last Dance. Because Jump 23 is a producer and Jump 23 is owned by Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan has say in what goes to air. Michael Jordan sees every episode before it goes to air. And Ken Bird said, that's not a documentary. You cannot have a documentary that documents history when the people who you are documenting have a say in what we see and what we don't see. That's called censorship. Not in the McCarthyism sense of censorship, but censorship in a way that says we are seeing Jordan's narrative. The Last Dance is a documentary by Michael Jordan about Michael Jordan. If you want to make conclusions about Michael Jordan and that last season or anything about his life or anything about Robin or Pippin or Krause, just know that you're seeing it through the lens of Jordan. And what choice do the producers have? The other producers, other than Jump 23. And I'll explain what I mean by that. One of the main producers is a guy named Mike Tollin. He's a brilliant producer, extremely successful, brilliant, brilliant. He was a producer who I worked with on the franchise when we filmed the franchise in 2012 as part of a Showtime, Showtime owned by Viacom CBS, CBS CBS Sports HQ. I'm here on a CBS platform. Thank you. Mike Tollin was an uh, independent producer who was somewhat in charge, working with David Nevins at Showtime, working with the Marlins, And we had a commitment because this was required by our owner that no episode would be put on the air without first being seen. And that if we didn't want something in the episode, it would be eliminated. That is one of the biggest reasons why the franchise didn't work because all the juicy stuff, all the stuff that fans would want to see, was not allowed to be seen. When you've got to manipulate and manufacture moments, when you've got to have screen time and think about who's getting how many minutes the way Michael Jordan needs to make sure that the interviews are exactly. Do you think for a minute that the director who was shooting the interview with Jordan, who showed him the iPhone of Isaiah Thomas talking about the handshake, do you think for even one minute that Michael Jordan wasn't aware that was going to happen as it was happening Do you think that the editing of the show is not happening without Michael Jordan being involved? Of course it is. So the question is, does that take away your belief in the last dance? The second question is, does it matter what you believe about the last dance? My answer is no and no. I'm in the business. I knew exactly what The Last Dance was. The minute you see that Jump 23 is a producer, you know this is not historical nonfiction. You know that anything you're going to learn is going to be slanted exactly the way Jordan wants it slanted. That's what he does. Why else would he agree to all these sit-downs? Because he wants to make sure that people remember he's the GOAT and LeBron's not? Is it a coincidence, by the way, that LeBron comes out with the title of Space Jam and comes out with this tweet about wanting to finish the season? It's all interconnected. I'm locking my hands if you're watching this, if you're listening, thank you. But I'm locking my hands. The interconnectivity of LeBron and Jordan, forever linked. Alphaville, forever young. Don't be upset about Ron Harper or Jordan or Mike Tollin or Jump 23. Don't let Ken Burns make you crazy. Just know and be educated about what you're watching. And what you're watching is the story of Michael Jordan as told by Michael Jordan with permission by Michael Jordan to make Michael Jordan look as good as possible, including the pregame publicity saying, I'm going to come off looking like an ass. got some bad news yesterday. It's not life or death. It's just disappointing, disappointing news. The Little League World Series in Williamsport this August has been canceled. Got the call. I saw it on Twitter. Got the call. Went on CBS Sports HQ last night. Talked about it in a little bit of detail. Immediately was an instant reaction to it. It's coming off the heels of the Hall of Fame being canceled. The induction with Jeter, the Week be- the night before, knowing that Jeter gets to be now inducted in a ceremony in 2021, knowing he'll still be known as the class of 2020, the first thing I thought of when the Little League World Series was canceled, the first thing I thought of is what about the players who age out of Little League this year, who work so hard, whose that's the whole carrot at the end of the day is to get to Williamsport. It's for baseball players around the world. You want to get win your regional tournament. Make it to Williamsport. Become the Little League World Series champion. You want to be there to see a major league game. The Red Sox and the Orioles had a game scheduled in August in Williamsport. That game has been taken down. No more game in March when they canceled the NCAA tournament I was thinking they're going to give eligibility maybe back to some fifth year seniors but only for spring sports that never happened so if you're a player who didn't get to play in the NCAA tournament and you go pro or just you you graduate and you're done you're done end of story is it the end of the world no it's a sad reality but in little league They cannot possibly make a 13- or 14-year-old. What's the age, Coke? I think you got to be 12 is the maximum, maybe 13. Remember that little league who played and he was like 17 years old and he could hit the ball 500 feet and he looked older than I look now, although I have a beard. His name was Danny Almonte. You remember him. How old was he? Coke is telling me he was a pitcher, but he was just older than he should have been and he was lights out. You remember that? All the scouts were watching and all excited. By the way, did Danny Almonte make it? I'm trying to think if we ever drafted him and if he played in the major leagues. I'm thinking, hold on, give me a minute. Let me check. Did we draft him? No. There's not necessarily a correlation between Little League greatness and Major League greatness, but it helps to build fan affinity, and that's what we're trying to do. Should we allow Little Leaguers to play an extra year? What about having two World Series next year in 21 and having the teams able to play with – the 2020 team, and then a 2021 team? What about if money is given by Major League Baseball? Although, believe me, there's not a lot of money to give right now. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. Actually, next, we're going to talk about what's going on with all the fighting in baseball between owners and owners and umpires and owners and players. But what if Major League Baseball gave money through their play ball initiative and the union helped participate? where there could be double the amount of tournaments next year. Do you think a parent of a 14-year-old, if you're age out at 13, or a 13-year-old, if you age out at 12, would they let their child play literally one extra summer? Would it be okay in Williamsport to bring two tournaments, have double the amount of games, so we can crown a 2020 champion with people who would have been on the 2020 team then make a 2021 team where the oldest people from 20 can't play on the 21 team, but the people who were on 20 can also play on 21, and you've got two World Series champions, I'm in. You can't do that in professional leagues, I get it. You can't do it in college, I get it. But in little league, you can. What that wouldn't address is the major issue we have in Williamsport from an economic standpoint. All the regional tournaments, all the ancillary businesses in those communities that they're losing business hand over fist because they are. It's an absolute tragedy what is happening to these businesses, the amount of money, the amount of furloughing, unemployment that's going to happen. But I still think that there's a solution that we can come up to that's creative, and I'm going to help come up with that solution. And it is two World Series championships next season in Williamsport. Let's go. All right, put on your boxing gloves, folks. Get ready. This isn't for charity. This is actual. We got ourselves a fight. An actual knock them out, drag them out, fight to the finish. And you've heard me talk about it a little bit. If you're new to nothing personal, thanks for joining. We got about 126 episodes prior to today. We got a few bonus pods. Don't forget Saturday this coming Saturday, which is tomorrow, unless you're not listening to this today, in which case it's today. But maybe you're listening to it in a couple days because I learned that people listen to episodes, not necessarily on the day they drop. So it may be yesterday. Frankly, I have no idea. I just know that today is the first day of May. On the second day of May, you're going to get the bonus mailbag pod. That's going to drop And we've talked about a nothing personal in previous episodes, the reality that owners are going to be fighting with owners about revenue sharing. Owners are going to be fighting with players about pay. It's going to be a significant hurdle to jump over. But then we had a little bit of a nugget yesterday about two fights that are going on that have nothing to do with the main event. I look at it like this. It's like the UFC card when the UFC comes back. I think they're coming back in a couple of weeks in Jacksonville and there's the main card and then they've got about 10 undercards. People bet on them and people are excited in their fights and they cheer and there's blood and there's doctors needed. There's not enough testing. There's going to be a whole situation, but it happens. We've got a few undercards going on in MLB. The first one is an actual fascinating story written by Ken Rosenthal on The Athletic about umpires. Umpires? Who cares about umpires? Well, I do. Umpires are needed, even if I don't agree with their balls and strikes, even if I don't agree with how they apply the rules, even if I think they're not paying attention, they're tired, they're grumpy, they have a personal vendetta against our team, against certain of our players. Whatever I think, umpires are needed. But Major League Baseball has to do a deal with the umpires' union. It's a regular collective bargaining deal. The way they uh, agree with the players and the players' union, there's actually a umpire's union. It's like when you fly in an airplane. Did you know there's a pilot's union, but also a flight attendant's union and a mechanic's union? There's unions here. There's unions there. There's unions everywhere. So why is there a fight between MLB and the umpires? Why do you think? One guess here on Nothing Personal. You got it. M-O-N-E-Y. And it's big because MLB wants the umpires to take a 35% pay cut. The way it works is umpires get paid over 12 months. That means umpires actually get paid a third of their salary before the season even starts. They get bonuses during the course of a season. They get playoff bonuses. Then they get extra money if they're assigned. That's why it's so critical who gets assigned to different playoff series or the All-Star game even. Will there be an All-Star game? They get per diems because they schlep around. Guess who's not on our first-class team charter planes? Just take a guess. Yeah, the umpires. Nope. They are flying commercially and they're checking their big umpire bags. It's quite funny when they get to the ballpark, they get there with their tags. They've got their million mile medallions on it. They've got their luggage tags, their priority tags, these huge duffels. They're schlepping around all of their equipment because they have to schlep around their shoulder pads and their knee pads and shin guards and masks. Then they've got clothes. They go right into the clubhouse. They, then they've got a clubhouse attendant. We always had our visiting clubhouse attendant be the clubhouse attendant for the umpire's clubhouse. So there'd be food and there'd be a TV and there'd be little lockers. When we designed Marlins Park, we made the umpire's room. That's eh, fine. It's not as nice as the visiting clubhouse. The visiting clubhouse isn't close to as nice as the home clubhouse, not as much space but they get a per diem because they've got to tip the clubby. Then they've got to stay at a hotel. Then they've got to eat meals. So they've got to spend money. MLB wants to lower the per diem. They want to lower the salaries. And the MLB umpires said, we'll agree to 20%, but not 35%. And don't screw with our per diems. For all of you who take per diems, you know exactly what you do with them. You take $100 a day, you spend $70 a day, you have income of $30 a day, you multiply that by the number of days that you travel, and you say to yourself when you're offered not a lot of money in salary, ah, that's okay, because I'm counting the per diem profit I make as part of my salary. Guess what? As an organizational president, I know that you do that. I take that into account when I'm offering you a salary, that you're making a profit on your per diem. So the umpires don't want to give up their per diem they are thinking about rejecting the deal. And MLB, here is a note for you, because I've been in these rooms. MLB wants nothing more than for the umpires to reject this. They want nothing more than a PR fight against umpires because no one's going to be on the umpire's side. But more importantly, they want to get rid of some of the dreck. Do you think that MLB does not have an interest in getting rid of, and this is business? if you're Angel Hernandez or you're Joe West, I'm not being personal. Business. You know that your day is past. You know that MLB is looking to move on. Give them a reason. You give me one reason. Tracy Chapman, give me one good reason, and I will do a settlement with you that guarantees that you two are furloughed forever at a minimum. In 1999, any recollection of what happened with the Major League Baseball umpires? Anybody? Anyone remember how there was a fight with the union? And when the umpires settled, part of that settlement, you all walked off the job. And part of coming back is MLB said, eh, I think there's a few of you who we're not going to rehire. So go ahead, Major League Baseball umpires. I dare you walk off in this time of pandemia. Walk off. You're playing right into the commissioner's hands. You think they're too busy dealing with the players and dealing with all the other Michigas that's going on, trying to figure out when they're going to come to play, that they don't have time to deal with you too or to take a hard line? You bet your bippy they have time and they're going to do it. And when they do it, it's going to hurt. And the players are beginning to realize that too. How is that transition, Coca, better? I stopped on and it's going to hurt. I didn't do like an extra line. Like, and that's what I'm talking about with umpires. I can learn. Coke is amazing. After each show, he goes over, says we should be doing this, do a little more of this, a little less of this. You weren't, didn't have good energy with that on the transition, which is when you go from one subject to another, you got to try to be better. And he always says to the point of even like a website and her tattoo, let's be great. That was silence, by the way, Coca. <laughs> So the next thing, MLB's fighting with players about the amateur draft. How great is that? Word came out that the Major League Baseball Players Association has decided to vote against the changes that Major League Baseball wants to make to the amateur draft. That is a mistake. Owners are trying to save money on the amateur draft. You're right. Amateur players are not in the union. You're right. You don't need to protect them because the best ones will make it to your union. Start worrying about protecting your union and what you're going to do in terms of players' salaries at the major league level. You've given the hammer to baseball by allowing them to lower the draft to five rounds. They offered you 10 rounds. They offered you slots for five rounds. They offered you a limit on what would be, happen to the next five rounds in terms of pay, and you said no because you're so worried that baseball is trying to save money and not pay players who really need it? (laughs) It makes me sad. Give me a break. There's no minor league baseball this year. You know that's going to happen. There'll be a developmental league only for the best prospects and the best people drafted. You should be wanting free agency for these players because you know teams are competitive. If you've got a minor league player, Who's not drafted or a college player or a high school player who's not drafted or who doesn't want to sign for the pittance of 10 or $20,000. Fine. Be a free agent. You've got 30 teams. I double dare you. I triple dare you to declare free agency at the major league level every single year. Get rid of long-term contracts. You're so excited about being a free agent. We'll give you free agency after one season in the big leagues. We'll give you free agency every single year. No problem. Good luck with a long-term deal. Good luck collecting money when you stink or when you're hurt. Spending your time worrying about the draft when Major League Baseball
1: has the final, final say that they're going to cut it to five rounds, which they're going to do. Be better. Ordinary People is the
0: most unordinary film I think that I have uh, ever seen. It's a movie from 1980 that won Best Picture the same year as the movie from yesterday, Breaker Morant. I'm back to the quarantine lifetime Best Picture Challenge. Ordinary People won Best Picture in 1980. First film ever directed by Robert Redford. What I'd like to know, why? Give me one possible reason that my brain had me watch Ordinary People yesterday. I can't tell you to watch it right now Because it's a movie, as I said, first movie directed by Robert Redford. It won four Oscars Best Picture. It's got Donald Sutherland as the father, Mary Tyler Moore as the mother, Timothy Hutton, Judd Hirsch as a a, uh, um, psychologist. It's about a family dealing with the death of a child and then the mental illness of another child played by Timothy Hutton. It's brutal. It uh, I'm trying to think of the right way to say it it hurts. It simply hurts to watch. You know you're watching brilliance, but you know you are watching something that will make you cry and not in a way like a happy cry. It's a deep cry and it's not a tears like when you have tears of joy when things happen or when you start getting worked up and a little bit verklempt. This is just a cry and maybe I needed a cry or maybe I just felt a little lonely, or felt as though I wanted to feel this way, but I didn't remember that I would feel the way I was gonna feel because when I first saw the movie, I definitely cried, but didn't feel that way. The way I felt watching it yesterday was different. I wanna review it because I want you to see it because just be, because we're having a hard time now, don't give up on art that tugs at the heartstrings and that makes you think about family dynamics, makes you think about mental illness and the seriousness of mental illness. Because let me tell you, it's real. Mental health issues are off the charts during this time of quarantine and shelter in place, stay at home, where there's no commuting, there's no working, there's high unemployment, there's death either close to you or you know of someone who's sick. Mental illness is something that we have to address. We have to address it with players, we have to address it with staff, you have to address it with your friends, with your family. And this movie is the ultimate mental health movie. It's called Ordinary People. I think you should watch it. But can I say this, Coca? Just don't watch it today. So you want to talk to Samson. All right. This is one where uh, you get into my Twitter at David P. Samson. You ask a question and I'm going to answer it to the best of my ability. And I'm going to be honest about it because, you know, that's what we do at Nothing Personal. And I'm going to not choose just the softballs. I'm going to choose questions that actually are troubling. The other day, it was either yesterday or the day before, word came out that there's seven athletes who are suing the NCAA, alleging negligence in in a sexual assault case, alleging that the NCAA and coaches and athletic directors were actually not, not protecting these players, these women athletes who were assaulted, whether it was in a locker room or in a dormitory or in a room or wherever it was. And the question asked of me was, regarding this lawsuit, and I could talk forever about the lawsuit, because it's a, uh, it's an interesting question of law, and it came up in the Penn State child molestation case. What did Joe Paterno know? What should he have known? The question asked of me, and so you want to talk to Samson, did you know everything that happened with Marlins players off the field? Regarding the lawsuit, which alleges that player actions were known or should have been known by coaches and athletic directors, all of whom claim they don't know, didn't know, couldn't know. The question asked of me is, did you know everything that happened? Well, if I knew everything that happened, I would have been a precog in Minority Report, and I would have tried to see it going forward, and I would have stopped it. But I'm not a precog. I can examine or imagine things that could happen. I could do my best to try to stop them from happening. What do I do to players in the speech before every season? I talk to them about sexual assault. I talk to them about what happens when they get to road hotels. I talk to them about what I think they should be doing before they go out at night. I talk about how smart it is to get a car service or an Uber and don't drink and drive. But if I were able to know everything that's going on with a player... At the time it's going on, why would I have had arrests for DUI? Why would I have had arrests for sexual assault? Why would I have had investigations into these things during the course of my tenure? Now, do I take responsibility? That is the toughest question to answer. And I told you that as the president of a team, I take responsibility for every single thing that happens in the confines of our team. If there's cheating going on and I don't know about it, I should have. If I did know about it and were caught, I'm guilty. If there's cheating going on, if there's steroids, if there's sign stealing, if there is abuse or any sort of workplace misconduct, I'm not going to be Mark Cuban and say, I had no idea what was going on within the Mavericks front office, but I'm going to change it starting now. That's a bunch of crap. I take responsibility for every single thing that happens in my front office or even throughout the minor leagues anywhere with the thousands of employees. As president of a team for those 18 years, the buck stops with me and I'm good with that. What I'm less comfortable with, how do I control what my employees do when they're not at work? And am I in charge of those employees when they're not at work? Am I responsible for those employees when they're not at work? Well, from a business standpoint, when things happen like what happened at Penn State or what happens when players are arrested or when players break the law, it looks terribly upon the player, but also upon the team. When things happen on the field, front office is immediately implicated. You've got firings. You've got absolute hate, contempt, and disdain. But when things happen off the field, it's a little cloudier. When a player is charged with DUI, do you ever read anything about the front office? When Jose Fernandez died with drugs in his system, were we blamed for that as a front office? Did I feel responsible? Yes. Would I like to have stopped it? Yes. Could I have stopped it? No. I don't know what goes on in the hotel rooms. I can make sure the players are keeping curfew. I could knock on the door and have them open up the door every time. I don't want to be their babysitter. Do I know who they've got in their room or what they're doing in their room? Michael Jordan's in there and they're all partying and he walks in and then walks out. But there's parting going on in every hotel room. Some of the guys go to bed. Some don't. Some have women in there. Some have men in there. Some have both. Some have drugs in there. Some don't. Some are playing video games. Some aren't. Some are out at bars. till five in the morning, some go to bed with an ambient at 7 p.m. To each his own. But at the end of the day, you're going to be judged by what you do and how you perform and your ability to do your job. There is no way for me to know everything that goes on with players off the field. There is simply think about this. Does your employer know what you do on a Saturday? How about when you get home at 530 p.m. or 4 p.m. or 6 p.m. or 8 p.m.? What about during these times of quarantine? Just a little question when you're working at home being paid by the hour. Are you clocking every single thing you're doing, or are you charging for eight hours of doing work? I'm just asking. And how is your boss supposed to know? Do you want your boss calling you every two minutes? Should I be calling every player, or have someone calling every player every five minutes when they're away from the field? Is that an invasion of privacy? Is that something that I want to do and allocate my time to do? Do I have to do it in order to not be held to a higher standard of responsibility for when there are off the field actions that I find so despicable
1: that it makes me sick to my stomach? No. No. Anyone heard of
0: Monica Sellis? 27 years ago yesterday, Monica Sellis got stabbed in the back. I just want to I, I I make sure that you heard me. In 1993, for those of you who don't remember, those of you who weren't born, although judging by my demographic, many of you were. Monica Sellis was a number one tennis player. Monica Seles won her first Grand Slam at 16 years old. Monica Sellis won and reached the finals of 33 of 34 tournaments between January of 91 and February of 93. She was 55-1 and in Grand Slams. She had eight Grand Slam titles. On April 30th, 1993, in a quarterfinal match against Magdalena Maleva, she was winning 6-4-4-3. There's a changeover happening. There's a changeover happening. And all of a sudden you hear a, ah! Now Monica Sellis was the original grunter. She had this amazing two-handed forehand, two-handed backhand. She was a child, 19 years old. Hamburg, Germany, ah! And all of a sudden there's commotion, craziness, tackling of a fan. What's going on? Monica Sellis was stabbed in the back. The blade was an inch and a half in her back. She stands up. She collapses down. And that was basically it for her career. She ended up winning another Grand Slam. She did come back, but her career was never the same. And it turned out that she was stabbed by a fan, a psycho fan, a mentally ill fan, a disgraceful fan who ended up not serving any jail time a fan of Steffi Graf, her number one rival, Celis's rival. Celis was trying to take the number one ranking from Steffi Graf, trying to be Steffi Graf, better than Steffi Graf, would have been better than Steffi Graf. This fan got his way because Steffi Graf went on to win 22 Grand Slams. Steffi went to visit Monica Celis one time in the hospital, never really contacted her again. Steffi Graf's career was made better when Monica Celis couldn't have her career. She ended up sitting out for practically two plus years, 28 months. Do you guys remember the story of Tanya Harding who paid someone to club that, that uh, what's the name of the skater coca that Tanya Harding had clubbed in the knee? Um, She was America's darling in figure skating. I'm completely blanking right now. Isn't that horrible? But in any case, that was the Tanya Harding case. The Monica Sellis one was way, way bigger it is staggering to me that Monica Sellis as a tennis player, a professional player was actually stabbed. Nancy Kerrigan. Thank you, Coca. I miss Monica Sellis. She's still around and she still is affected by this. How could you not be? How do you not? I never told this story. I once was uh, mugged, and uh, the footsteps came from behind. It was in Boston and it was in the, winter and uh, I had my winter coat taken from me because these kids wanted a Christmas present for their families. I had keys in my hand and I held them so tightly that the key did a gash in my hand. I still hear footsteps behind me. To this day, that was 1986. To this day, 34 years later, I hear footsteps. You think it's a secret or a surprise that Monica Sellis looks behind her? We're thinking about you, Monica. We've never forgotten you. ML Beard Challenge, day 47. It is day 47. We're going to the valley. I read on Twitter, saw on Twitter that uh, Valley Girl came out. I don't know how many years ago. Maybe it's uh, 37 years ago. I think it was a 1983 movie. I could be wrong. Valley Girl, Valley. Well, we're going to the Golden State Warriors. Why Golden State? Who knew that today was Golden State? Yesterday was Milwaukee. How could today be Golden State? Oh, I'm looking at past NBA champions. No, I'm going in reverse order now of the Western Conference standings when play stopped in the NBA. Golden State called up an old friend of mine. I mean, she's not old. I guess she's – are you still friends with, an, with a former girlfriend? How does that work? When you are connected on social media, it was at a very young age, like a camp relationship, Do you say you're still friends when you connect and text from time to time? I don't know. I don't want to throw that word around, but I did text her. And I said, can you think of a good organization in the Golden State area to give $1,000 to today as part of the ML Beard Challenge where we're giving $1,000 in 100 days, a day for 100 days and growing the beard? Coca and I, Coca sends a picture to me every day. His picture today was especially unattractive. Coca, you looked angry. You looked sad. You looked despondent but it'll be funny for the time lapse. And it was suggested to me by Rebecca Eisenberg, that's her name, in uh, living in California in the S- Silicon Valley, that there's something called the Silicon Valley Community Foundation. And that's a foundation similar to what we did in Milwaukee as well. It's a foundation that actually is spending a ton of resources right now trying to find a way to Fill a void where the homeless population and COVID 19 is running rampant in the homeless population, trying to figure out what to do with the huge homeless population in California in general, in Northern California specifically. I'm there for you, Silicon Valley Community Foundation. Thank you, Becky. I know you're not Becky anymore. Isn't that funny when people get older, they go from Becky to Rebecca? Like that sounds all of a sudden has more aplomb or more, more uh, gravitas, not a aplomb. aplomb is poised, it has more gravitas. All right, Becky. Silicon Valley Community Foundation, you got it. Wait to see. I want to go back to NASCAR. NASCAR said, uh, I'm doing a wait to see here that I have a chance to lose or win very quickly here. When NASCAR said the checkered flag is coming down in Darlington County without Bruce Springsteen. And it's coming down soon on May 17th. That is the first of seven races in 11 days that NASCAR is having. They are trying to do without practice, with all this stuff that we talked about to start the show, seven races in 11 days in three national series. N-A-C. That's my way to see. My way to see is that NASCAR, N-A-C, not a chance. Believe me, I recognize why they're trying for this schedule. I recognize it. And when I tell you it's not going to happen, I do it knowing that in your mind,